Game on on 2FM. With Green Farm. Being up to 90 isn't real. The protein in our range is get real. Thanks to Jenny Green for her entertainment this afternoon. It's Monday the 17th of January and this is Game On. Coming up today, Murray Kinsella will join us to dis- discuss a decisive weekend for Irish provinces in Europe. Gareth Coombs has it, touches it down. Gavin Coombs at the try for Munster. They've beaten uh, Montpellier by 89 points to 7, scoring 13 tries. The chief engineer was Michael Lowry, and Ulster have a second. Connacht players are absolutely dejected, and the Leicester Tiger players are over the, overjoyed, full of the joys of life. In cricket, Alan Lewis had high hopes on Friday's show, so we'll check in with him again after Ireland's series win over the West Indies. Plus, in soccer, we're live to Merseyside to see if Everton fans want a Rooney return. I'd love Wazza. He's pulling up trees at Derby. So you would want Wayne Rooney, Mike? Yeah, I would. I'd give him it. We've been only with Dunk next to him, though, and I'd have, I'd, have, I'd have Wazza, Dunk, Baines and Kale. They've all got the badges. Get them in. Get Everton back to what Everton are, and that is a team that play on the front foot, a team that run, and a team that play for the badge. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at GameOn2FM. Sounds like the dream team for Everton, Ruby. GameOn on 2FM. Well, to, be, to be honest with you, Marie, I'd say they have a better chance of getting any one of the four of them than they have of Roberto Martinez. I mean, Belgium, the number one ranked team in the world, nine months out from a World Cup, and Everton are trying to entice them away to come and get them out of relegation. Oh, I, I, I had a good giggle at that this afternoon when I read it. Yeah, it I know make, he was there before, but like, what are the chances? Doesn't make a lot of sense, although Belgium are, uh, I don't know if they'll be as good in the World Cup maybe as they would have been if it was on a few years ago but still he's not going to take his eye off the ball there because it's such a big opportunity Would you? No, I think think about it like I mean you're good. Everton yeah he was there they sacked him before so he has to go back to a club that have sacked him previously he's done a good enough job with, with Belgium it's a World Cup coming up maybe after the World Cup they might get him but I couldn't see it right now It's just so hard to get jobs in the Premier League now you know it's like there's so is many it? people ah, it is yeah there'll, to be, get one, there'll be one in Manchester there shall soon enough True actually yeah OK, let's not talk about that today. No. For one day. I agree with you. There'll be plenty of jobs in the Premiership. That's like buses. They'll they just rotate, Marie. Round and round and round. Get not when you're there for a while, though. It's hard enough to get them, I think. I could see why he would at least think about it, because it's a way back in for him. And the pressure wouldn't be on him as much because he'd still have the Belgium thing going on, too. So, I mean, you get to do, get to do two things at the one time. Anyway. Quite possibly. We'll talk about that a little bit later on with Fergal Brennan, Al- Alan Cawley. Uh, Ruby, it was a good weekend for racing after a little bit of a break and we'd been speaking to Jane Mangan about Bob Ollinger and the fact that he was uh, just getting used to jumping over the fences and we spoke on Friday about his technique. So he did make it two wins in as many starts um, in the Kildare Novice Chase at Punchestown. But was he impressive? He was impressive with his the ability he showed, Mairead, Capad- or Marie even. Capadana went a really good gallop in front and put him to the sword. But his, his turn of foot off the home turn and how he put the race to bed was very impressive. But his jumping technique, for me, he gets from A to B. Um, obviously, they've done a lot of work with him. He's gotten quite assured of what he's doing. 
but he'd want to do it as quick as he does it for my money he doesn't make any ground in the air I was quite close to the last fence on the first circuit he should have had a cut and he didn't he took an extra extra half a stride and popped it which is wonderful and it's all safe but he's going to be relying on a lot of his natural ability to keep beating horses as he steps up in grade and yesterday in Punchestown because of the low lying sun the three fences in the back straight were missing when you're on the inside track at this time of the year in Punchestown there's only one fence in the home straight that race against similar and slightly better opposition by the spring festival at Punchestown would have five more fences in it I don't know I wouldn't I wouldn't he's a hell of a good racehorse I think he could do it going a bit further. I think he needs to be going slow to jump. You are always comparing athletes and horses. And in this instance, can you improve his technique or is that just the way it is? Can you train him to be can better? Can you improve? They have. And uh, obviously Henry de Bromhead and Rachel Blackmore and all of Henry's team have obviously done a huge job with it. Um, I was with a... Uh, jumping guru many years ago called Yogi Breisner who um, specialises in teaching horses to jump but also in coaching jockeys and I remember he had a phrase one morning in, in, in Lambourne when I was with him and he, he broke it down quite simply 10% of horses are naturals to jump they just naturally can't do it 10% cannot jump and never will jump and the 80% in the middle can be taught to jump properly or be taught to jump wrongly now he's from Scandinavia he spoke in that kind of English as well but I remember thinking yeah it's so he's so right now Bob Ollinger was closer to the temp- closer to the bottom 10% and he's been taught uh, a technique to jump um, and he does that really well but he's just not that natural that's going to get a couple of lengths in the air anywhere he's safe and look safe wins races but um, I'd like to see him be a little bit braver Okay, well that's interesting and something that we can keep an eye on and see if the technique does improve. I've spoken more about jumping technique in the last two shows than I have in my whole life. There you are now. Yeah. You learn so, something new every day. Yeah, I actually do, yeah. Things I didn't even know that I needed to know. So also this weekend as well, um, Making Waves was Dysert Dynamo, one of Willie's horses, two rubies, so no doubt one that you know quite well. Yeah, William Mullins is, um, look, he's, he's unbeaten now, Marie, in five, five starts even. Uh, two, two over hurdles, three bumpers. He was very impressive. Um, blew the opposition away, beat Gringo Dauberell by 19 lengths. He couldn't have been any more impressive. It's where does he go next? He obviously won't go to the Dublin Racing Festival. He's straight on to Cheltenham with him. And will he line up in the Supreme Novices or does he go for the Ballymore? He's quite keen. He, he made the running on, on Sunday. He would look the ob- an obvious Supreme type, but, that Supreme looks a really hot contest. You have Sir Gerhard, Constitution Hill, John Bon. It looks such a really deep race, whereas the Ballymore doesn't look as strong. It's an extra five furlongs, but he has won a two miles, two and a half furlong bumper at Clonmel, so distance should be okay for him. It'll be interesting to see what Willie does with him. And knowing my former boss, that won't be a decision that he will reach a conclusion for for quite some time yet. Right, it is coming around pretty quickly, though. Like, just... Five weeks, it. is it? Yeah. Where are we now? Middle January? No, it's a bit more than that. It's three weeks to Dublin Racing Festival and five weeks to Chatham. Eight weeks. Okay. Now, anything else from this weekend that we should have been keeping an eye on, Ruby? Yeah, I thought Seamus Power um, in Hawaii was, was brilliant. I mean, get himself into the top 50 in the world. He's only one place behind Shane Lowry now. He's 49. Shane is 48. Uh, third place at the Sony Open in Hawaii. And I thought it was interesting reading his comments after. Like he, His goal is to be at the Tour Championship at Eastlake in, in August. That's his target for the year. Get enough FedEx Cup points to make sure he gets to there. Um, look, he's... I, 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 
slightly feel he flies under the radar a little bit as regards Irish golfers. He obviously had a great win last year, but he plays solely in America. Um, he's from Waterford, he's 34 years of age, and his career is going in one direction for the last while. And you wish him all the best, Mick. I hope he climbs further up the world rankings. Um, it's great to have Irish people doing well, everywhere in the world, or anywhere yeah, in the world. It really is, and like saying he's 34, it feels like he's been around for quite a long, long time. I guess maybe he, uh, he probably has, but 34 is still quite young, and he does have an awful lot of golf ahead of him as well, so it'd be brilliant to keep him going on that trajectory. Gary Murphy was on on Tuesday just talking about his consistency and, and how he seemed to achieve that and the things that he was working on, and I've heard since Tuesday an awful lot more conversations about him, so I'd say just given the fact that a lot of those experts seems to seem to be um, believing in, in what he's doing and have a lot of faith in him, um, we could be seeing and hearing and talking about him quite a lot more over the next while. Right, let us actually before we go Ruby the US Open started to, to the US Open the Australia Opens Australian Open started um, today and for our, what was a build up that was completely dominated by non um, well off court things it was nice to actually hear and see a few results yeah, it was. Look, some and some big names played today. I'm um, Ashley Bartley, uh, the world number one. She won in two straight sets. Fifty-four minutes it took her to win at the Rod Laver Arena. Six love, six one. Miomi Osaka, who's the defending champion, she won in two sets as well. Six three, six three. Rafa Nadal, who's the only former winner in the men's side, still in the competition. He won in three straight sets. Six one, six four, six two. So, look, a lot of things you do, you would expect in the first round happened. Obviously, Cameron Norn, the British number one, the twelve seed, he blew out. He got hockeyed by Sebastian. Giancorda, the US rising or the US star of, of American tennis, six three, six love, six four. So a disappointment for him, but pretty much as expected with the the rest of the big guns that played this afternoon and plenty of UK interest tomorrow. Obviously, Andy Murray starts his um, starts his competition tomorrow morning ish. Yeah, round about then. <laughs> Right, okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on then. Uh, I guess Robbie did take centre stage this weekend because of the Champions Cup and it being such a, a big competition for all of the Irish provinces. Uh, Murray Kinsler of the 42 joins us on the line. Murray, it's interesting that, you know, we finished the weekend of rugby where four Irish provinces are in action and a lot of the conversation has been dominated about whether, uh, by the, the narrative of, of whether or not the, the French clubs are taking it as seriously as, as the Irish clubs and and if it's almost making a little bit of the farce what hap- of the competition when you think about what happened um, in the Leinster-Montpellier game at the weekend with Leinster just demolishing a second string Montpellier side and you know you could even nearly argue that it was a third string just what what are your thoughts on, on the competition now? Yeah, an 89-7 win is not a good look for the competition. Leinster scored 13 tries and listen, they deserve massive credit for the manner they returned from a, a good long break without action to be so clinical and sharp in attack but this is not what the premier European club competition in rugby should be about at all. Particularly now that there's only four pool games so you would imagine sides would have been a lot more interested including Montpellier who got five points awarded to them last month when, when Leinster's game over in France was cancelled due to COVID. So they were well in the mix, Montpellier. And, and I think it, it is, you used the word, word earlier on, it, it's a farcical look, really, um, for, for the competition. And listen, it hasn't been the case across the board. Other French clubs, of course, do have interest. Toulouse are the, the holders. Ronald Gares, La Rochelle will be right in the mix again. And they'll keep battling away. Obviously, Cast changed their team for the Munster game, but they were very competitive and very interested in that game so really it's focused around that Montpellier game and you'd almost like to see 
uh, Montpellier punished beyond just shipping an absolutely, I suppose, embarrassing and humiliating scoreline in that game. Yeah, look, whatever the scoreline was, Leinster could only play, as you said, Murray, against the opposition that was in front of him. So put your Irish hat on, your Irish glasses on. Before we get to the to the good news, there was some slightly bad news early. James Ryan obviously was injured in the warm-up and had to give the captaincy to Gary Ringrose, and Tyg Furlong went off quite early. Has there been any update on the two of those today? Nothing today. Um, afterwards, Leo Cullen said that um, Tyg Furlong had hurt his calf, and obviously he's had calf injuries before that period where he's out of the game for a, a long time. But uh, it didn't sound too bad initially. They're, they're hopeful on him. Um, and obviously the Six Nations around the corner, so Andy Farrell wouldn't have liked to see that. Jordan Larmour, a dead leg, having had a really good first half, which was encouraging from an Ireland point of view. And James Ryan is another one we'll have to, to wait and see on. But again, I, I think it was more precautionary than anything. Also good for Ireland to see Johnny Sexton and Jack Conan back. They haven't played since the November tests, which is obviously such a, a long period at rugby. Um, and and rest, the rest of the Ireland internationals did look really sharp. Someone like Josh van der Fleer, another player to match performance. Gary Ringrose was unbelievably involved in everything. He had the most touches of the ball outside the two halfbacks in the team. James Lowe scoring a, a try late on. Gibson Park was, was sharp as well. Um, and listen, there wasn't anyone who didn't look sharp on, on that day, but I think Farrell would have been pleased with, with some of those performances. No, there wasn't. Obviously, Hugo Keenan would look razor sharp as well. But what about Jimmy O'Brien? He had a huge influence on the game. Did he manage to maybe stick his hand up and show Andy Farrell that, yeah, I'm here too? Yeah, he, he did well and showed some of his skills. Um, the issue, I suppose, is that the Ireland back three is a particularly competitive area. You saw someone like Robert, Robert Balakun coming back in for, for Ulster from injury and really impressing. But Jimmy O'Brien's been an interesting player. He came through um, the, the Leinster system, obviously, from Newbridge College and, and played a bit with the Ireland sevens. And he's a very versatile player, really useful guy to have in your squad. He can play in midfield and that fullback as well. And he showed a bit of his class on, on the wing. So, uh, yeah, definitely guys keep a, a, an eye on, but it is a very competitive area for Ireland. You mentioned Josh van der Fleer and he just seems very to keep going to another level of his game. And it's hard to, to see how much more he can get out of himself, but he just keeps delivering week after week. What is it that he's doing that has made him evolve so much? Yeah, he's a fascinating player to, to watch because I think a lot of people probably had felt he was already at his ceiling a couple of years ago and he's managed to work so hard and diligently to, to like improve areas of his game that weren't previous strengths. Most obviously his ball carrying, which has been discussed a lot, but is clearly now a strength of his game having not been that. Um, and he's a guy who has kind of always been a little bit overlooked and under the radar. Obviously people have been hoping to see Dan Levy get an injury-free run. He hasn't been able to get that and that's been really cruel but in the meantime, Josh van der Fleer has added so many different areas to his game, his breakdown skills even, and, and competing at the breakdown. He's just been really honest and self-critical with himself and identified the areas that weren't probably up to the, the very top international standards. And now he's a guy who delivers just a brilliant performance every single weekend, really. And, and coming into the Six Nations, that's another positive for, for Andy Farrell. Of course, the back row is, is the other area of the squad where there's loads of competition and loads of good players and even young guys bursting through. But... Josh van der Fleer is, is really holding on to that jersey with his excellent form. Obviously, look, Leinster got it easy with what, what Montpellier, Montpellier even turned up with, but Ulster had to go to Northampton and they showed a lot of flair. I mean, Billy Burns, Michael Lowry, um, they had a, a lot of spark across their back line, Ulster. Yeah, the back line, average age of just under 23, so so much youth in that team. James Hume is a guy who stood out a lot 
uh, over the last while at, at 13. He's a guy who's pushing for Ireland honours as well. Robert Balakun, as we just mentioned, was back from an injury and he looks just brilliant on the, on the right wing. He can do it all. He's pacey, he's strong, he's clever, he makes good reads, he's good in the air. You saw his overhead catch at one stage was brilliant. Ethan McElroy on the other wing is a guy who's probably not got as many headlines but has been equally as impressive. He's got a brilliant sidestep and he's very confident going forward. And then Mike Lowry, the, the smallest guy on the pitch always, but he tends to make some of the biggest impacts in the game with his skill level. He can play out half as well as fullback and you can see I suppose the creativity and the comfort on the ball but he's got a serious amount of pace as well and you saw it for a couple of their tries where he counter-attacks away and then the other guy younger guy was Stuart Moore who was replacing um, Stuart McCluskey obviously the totemic figure who's very experienced and very important but Stuart Moore showed he has loads of playmaking ability and a, a different type of inside centre so there's huge excitement in, in that Ulster backline as importantly they, they got a, a good effort from their forwards again Dwayne Vermeulen is an influence, obviously, with his huge experience with the Springboks winning the World Cup. But to see guys like Kieran Treadwell um, and Marty Moore and, and guys like that impressing up front is just as important for Ulster. But it was a good win away from home from them, especially after the disappointment down in Tolman Park the week before where obviously there was an early red card and they weren't able to, to get a win there. So excellent for them to bounce back and show their attacking quality. We know how competitive it is going to be when um, Andy Farrell announces his squad and, and picks his team. And um, A lot of the time when it comes to Ulster, people feel that they're quite hard done by. Is there anybody out of those people that, that you've named there uh, that you think Andy Farrell is going to be looking at or, or might give a chance to? I definitely think Hume and Balakun are probably the two who are closest to featuring in matchday squads at least. I think Balakun is a guy who has loads of additional potential and we saw him obviously in November and he, and he played last summer as well as did Hume um, but they definitely are keen to be further involved Hume is a really ambitious and confident young guy obviously Gary Ringrose has been the, the kind of incumbent in the 13 jersey but it'll be brilliant to see them get opportunities the Italy fixture falls in the middle of the championship the third round and I think that's a brilliant opportunity for, for Farrell to give guys those those chances that'd be great to see another guy I didn't mention actually is Nathan Doak the scrum half he was the other guy making his his European first start. Uh, he's only 20 and he is just a really excellent player. He's assured, he's calming, he's got kind of an experienced head on him despite his, his youth. And he's a guy who would you like to see maybe around the environment, even as a development player, just to, to get his kind of experience at that level as well because he's got international potential. You took that name right out of my mouth. I was just about to ask you about Nathan Doak. And obviously with Gibson Park looking like the number one, Conor Murray maybe dropping to the number two, that Italy game, it might be an opportunity for him. And obviously he's a very good goal kicker as well. Yeah, he does that really well, which is handy for, for Ulster with, with Cooney missing. Um, I suppose the only issue is there's lots of other good scum halves in the country still. Like Craig no, Casey no is a great prospect. Yeah. And um, Kieran Marmion is a guy we have to mention. He's playing really outstanding rugby in Connacht and consistently doing it as well. Uh, and he's been excellent over the last number of, of weeks and months even. So he's a guy who'll try to push back in there. You've got Luke McGrath in, in um, Leinster as well. Caelan Blake in Connacht. Really, the, the list goes on. And Cooney himself, obviously, who's been on the outside of Ireland for, for a long time now. So it's an area of strength. But Doak, definitely, you're, you're right. He has that potential. Speaking of Marmion and Connacht, I'm oh, sorry, I've got the cross, Marie here. That's what um, I was going to say, Ruby. You're actually I'm reading my mind. I can do that now, Marie. Just know by the way you're looking at me. Um, speaking of, of Marmion, look, Connacht didn't start. Then Kieran Marmion got going. They had Leicester where they wanted them, and it just all slipped away from them. It looked cruel almost. Yeah, 
it was heartbreaking. Um, and you saw Bundyaki's, I suppose, passion after the final whistle. It, it spilled out in the wrong way, but he's obviously apologised for that since, which is, is good to see. But it was just devastating for Connors. They were in within seconds, within minutes of, of beating one of the best teams in Europe as Leicester are. They've been brilliant in the Premiership all, all year. And Connors had a 28-10 lead at one stage in the second half, which is a really big lead. And you just felt like they were going to close it out from there. But they didn't manage the last quarter of the of the game well at all. Their scrum was an issue after Finley Bealham, the Ireland international. He went off and they started to struggle there. They were a bit panicky in how they kind of kicked out of their own defensive area of the pitch. They they started to, to force it a little bit and gave Leicester a chance to come back into the game. And then their line-out, which had been so good and which was the, the platform for their, their 28-0 lead, really, they scored from that platform each of the four times. But that had a couple of misfires and they were really important ones at really important stages. So, listen, I, I think it's overall been a kind of positive experience for Connacht against Leicester. They've lost both times, but they've shown that they are actually at that level against the be- some of the best teams in Europe. They obviously won't take much satisfaction from that, but they really are kind of here to stay and their improvement to this kind of top table is really encouraging. Obviously, they've got to go now to, to Paris next weekend or this coming weekend, rather, and they were really good chances still being into the round of 16 in Europe. So it's not all doom and gloom. And, and as we said, when they built that 28-10 lead, they played some just brilliant rugby. Like they're fantastic to watch, aren't they? So exciting, great backs. All their forwards are skillful as well. And they're definitely going in the right direction. They really are fantastic to watch and we know that they like to play the game a certain way because Andy Friend is um, quite forthright in telling people that when he's doing interviews. But should they have done something different though to try and close that game out? I actually think they slightly went away from what they're good at in, in that last quarter, really. And, and that's what Andy Friend's sense of it was. He said they kind of stopped playing. And, and that's the temptation always when you get into a strong lead is to try and kind of cling on. And, and I think even we mentioned the Ulster-Munster match there last weekend, the previous weekend rather, they, Ulster kind of did that as well and they ended up giving up a, a lead as well. You know, Connacht are at their very best when they're moving teams around, when they're playing a tempo when they're making big, heavy packs uncomfortable and making them cover a lot of ground, when they're passing the ball and changing the point of, of attack, they're at their very best. So I think it'll actually be a, maybe a, a strengthening of their identity, really, rather than trying to be a more conservative team. Um, Connacht, are, their identity now, inherent identity, is, is as an attacking, running team, and, and they always get the best results when they do that. It's called playing not to lose instead of playing to win. And it's a big difference and many people don't understand. But look, obviously there was plenty of entertaining games. The Munster cast one, probably not as entertaining. It was gritty determination, commitment, and they got themselves over the line in the end. And I couldn't believe they didn't take the penalty in the 71st minute, but it turned out to be the right call. Yeah, I was in the same boat as you there. I was surprised they didn't take that three points and, and go back again and when Cass stole that line out yeah it was oh. seven minutes left and, and you felt okay that actually might be that but typically Munster they manufactured another opportunity and typically it was Ty Byrne with a turnover penalty in the 75th minute that allowed them to go up the pitch and, and eventually score through typically Gavin Coombs who's become the talisman in, in the wake of CJ Stander retiring I suppose he stepped up hugely and absolutely they deserve credit for that great listen it was a, as we as mentioned earlier on Cass had made 14 changes to their team but they were really impressive I thought they defended well they were aggressive they uh, took their chances for, for the try in the first half in particular it was a nice score and Munster had to really respond to it 
they actually had some nice little passages and flourishes in Attack Monster. It's not fully getting there yet, but there was some nice ideas like a, a nice crossfield kick from Rory Scannon to Keith Earls in the first half where they played out of their own 22 and a better kick on the next phase from Jack Crowley and they might actually score it over on the, the right-hand side early in the second half as well. People might remember a couple of kind of fluid passages of attacks where you saw their forwards even passing the ball. And that's, I think, when Munster are at their very best, when they have a bit of balance to their game. Because I think, as we've discussed before, when it's too far towards the kind of confrontation and the kicking, I think they're just a little bit blunt in, in that aspect. So it was good to see those little flourishes in attack and a bit more of that stuff that even against Ulster we saw for the winning try, they, they use their attacking handling, I suppose, very well in that instance. And that has to be the development for this team. But yeah, credit to them for digging it out at the, the very death after we both thought that they'd kind of missed their opportunity. Indeed, credit to the Murray, but at the same time, it is quite a repetitive conversation where the development isn't as obvious. And a lot of people are pointing that out. Bernard Jackman, one of them in the Sunday Independent on Sunday, saying that we need to look beyond the results, get a better sense of where Munster are in reality. And you just look back at the last four games, averaging 15 points and said that they look far more comfortable without the ball. Bernard himself has been getting a little bit of, of criticism for being harsh. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, absolutely. It's something myself and Bernard have discussed quite a lot in, in the last while. And, and you're right, it is the, the kind of topic around Munster. Um, and that's why I'm kind of mentioning those little flourishes. That's where they have to go with it. They have to push that side of their game a, a hell of a lot more, really, because they've got to so many semi-finals, they've got to a final, and, and they just haven't had that cutting edge to, to have that kind of big one moment even sometimes in their attacking game. Listen, we know that a lot of it isn't going to change. That's just the way they are. They they focus on the mall. They focus on their defensive strengths. They focus on being clinical from close range, which they actually weren't against Cast. They repeatedly missed opportunities in 22. And actually, some of the occasions there were where they offloaded the ball loosely. Three times in particular, I can remember in the game, in the 22, where they went for a bit more ambitious with the offload, but it wasn't accurate. So the execution and the accuracy of those things have to be massive but I, I absolutely agree with Bernard. We still don't know exactly what Munster are, are, are going to produce um, when they get to those knockout stages and more pressure is on. The evidence of the recent years would suggest that they wouldn't have enough. And you just hope to see those little glimpses that we've seen in the last couple of weeks um, just pushed a bit more and, and for that attacking side of the game to be more of a focus for them. I can just hear them all saying Munster will do it the Munster way. Murray Kinsella, thanks a million for taking our call. We're going to take a quick break. Green Farm. Rise and grind as the hustle mindset aren't real. The protein in our chicken is get real. Game on on 2FM. Welcome back. Now it's time to talk cricket and to discuss Ireland's fantastic victory over the West Indies in their three-match one-day international series. I am delighted to be joined by former Ireland cricketer Alan Lewis. Alan, we had you on on Friday and you were cautiously optimistic. Must be pretty happy now. Uh, very, very happy. I, I, I went with cautiously optimistic because it's a political phrase. I was very optimistic, <laughs> actually, having watched the two games. But uh, thrilling thrilling in the end. We don't do things with any degree of ease. We keep the crowd at the edge of their seats. Uh, it was... should really been a relatively straightforward victory uh, 
was made incredibly exciting by the loss of those wickets towards the end. But we got there. That's the Irish way of doing things, isn't it? But it was Ireland's first ever series win over a full ICC member. Alan, is that something you could have foreseen 15 years ago? Oh, not a chance. Not a chance. Um, you know, quite honestly, Ireland were kind of known for one-off kind of victories against major opposition. But kind of the whole ball, the whole kind of, the whole frame of the game changed in 2007. And obviously with the elevation of, you know, the golden generation 2011. But now what's happening is, is there's some really good young players who've come to the fore. Harry Tector with three, three half centuries. He's batted beautifully, looked to the manner born, looked far more mature than his years. There's a lot of young players, obviously the experienced players in Sterling. We've got to remember we were missing our captain. We were missing two others that probably would have been in the eleven. So I just thought the West Indies were there for the taking. They looked very lackadaisical. They lacked penetration with the ball apart from Asari Joseph. And uh, we just bowled very well collectively. Andy McBride thoroughly deserving of, you know, the man of the match with both bat and ball to think that he got hit in the head twice while batting never flinched. You know, it was just a measure of the perhaps the totality of the performance. So Graham Ford stepped away um, just a little while ago and David Ripley stepped in as the interim coach. What has mm-hmm. he brought to this team? Like, where are the improvements that you're noticing, Alan? Well, I think perhaps a lot, and I, and, and I don't, I, I don't know the man, but of course he's had COVID himself, so he, he actually wasn't there, uh, as far as I know. But but uh, certainly, I think when you're away like that in a trip, and again, particularly in a bubble, it's so difficult. You've got to try and keep yourself going. And I think Paul Sterling alluded to that fact here. They're very much a together squad. He came in because obviously Andy Balberni was out. You know, he's our most kind of exuberant, probably the, in a sense, on the world stage, the best cricketer that we have. And, you know, the players really responded to him. And you kind of feel that in the field. They just stuck at it, even at the start yesterday, where West Indies got away to a bit of flyer. Great catch from Josh Little, fantastic catch from Harry, Harry Tector. And just you could feel this role. And then McBride got into his stride and you could just feel it. You know, they, these are the sorts of things in sport you just feel and they just stayed amongst them and stuck at us, which was, you know, something that can happen in cricket that side can get away with, get away from you with a partnership, a fantastic run out from Gareth Delaney, even though Holder had been dropped on a, a relatively simple chance by Craig Young. But they just stuck at it. And that's what I most admired about them. I love the quote from Andy McBride last night where he just said about his bowling that he tried to keep things as simple as, pos- as possible and tried to force them into mistakes. It's an easy mentality, not the easiest thing in the world to do, but that's basically what they did. Well, that, that's essentially it. And, and like most things in sport, Ruby, a lot of the times when you do the simple things well, uh, they often work. And that's, that's essentially what he did. But he's a highly skillful bowler now. He's really developed into... A world-class bowler, not not, and he was he's he's been kind of competing with Simi Singh, and that's also a good thing within the team. They've spurred each other on, which has been huge. But the other side of things is he's t- he's taken this number three position, batted unbelievably courageously, having been hit in the head. He got hit in the head in the, in the second game. He got hit in the head yesterday. There was no way he was going off. Didn't flinch, and uh, just again, that's another measure. What does that say to addressing them? You know, it says huge amount of the players that are coming behind him that this guy's going to stand there and deliver. And that's, in essence, what they did. And that was the most pleasing thing about the performance. And you could just feel that amongst the team. I was thrilled for them. 
do as I do, not as I say. But also, there was another quote from Andy that I thought was interesting, where he said, we may have been fortunate to win the toss three times. Is the toss well, that, really that relevant? It is, it is. Generally, when you start a game at half past nine, there's a, there's a wee bit of dew in the outfield. There's a little bit of moisture in the pitch, which will aid the seam bowlers. Now, it didn't, it didn't to, be, to be honest with you, in the first two games, it looked that way. The pitch, generally throughout yesterday, I thought looked good. I didn't think there was any demons in it in any shape or form. The new ball did a bit. Sterling was dropped early on. Uh, by the West Indies and a good spell by Asari Joseph, but you know, by and large, I thought the wicket played well yesterday. Certainly in the in the first and the second game, the general consensus was it it aided them. Not so much yesterday, I thought, and I watched I watched the entire match yesterday. So, um, you know, it was it was wonderful the way they went about it. So a new coach will be coming in shortly. Henrik Malin is the man's name. I think I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. that correctly. You might correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, Alan. So I know a lot of the, the conversation kind of when Graham stepped away was that nobody was really sure what was going to happen next for this Irish cricket team. Mm. But the fact they've got this win now will be massive. And mm. it just puts them in a good place for him to take over and keep moving in that right direction. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, if we're, if we're to look coldly and honestly, in terms of the resources and the tools that are available in the country, you know, to Ireland, their facilities is a major bugbearer for everyone at the moment in terms of allowing these professional players to train in, in what is deserving of a professional setup. And we just don't have it at the moment. They're going from club to club to try and engineer and tinker around with practice and uh, we so desperately need the right type of facilities for these players to prosper because obviously as a test nation we've got to, we've got to keep well we are keeping them at home where you know previously in the past and Niall O'Brien alluded to it on commentary most of the players went to England you know to to make their career but that's changed now and it's much more difficult for them to do that because they're regarded as overseas players so the fundamental and the most most poignant message has to be, you know, the the, the provision of facilities so that the, so that this team and the next generation can prosper. Well, the biggest currency in any sport is is winning, Alan, and they're starting to do that. So who knows what can happen? Thanks so many for taking our call. It was a momentous occasion in Jamaica. Green Farm. Being flat to the mass isn't real. Our protein is. Get real. Game on on 2FM. Welcome back to Game On on this Monday evening and we're going to turn our attention towards soccer. So on Sunday afternoon, Everton got rid of Rafa Benitez and all the talk is who's going to be up next? Alan Cawley, I know you're in studio with Marie, Roberto Martinez, Wayne Rooney. Who's going to come and try and save Everton from joining Newcastle and Norwich in that? Big Duncan Ferguson. We all want Rooney, don't we, Ruby? We all want Rooney. Um, Uh, He's going to stay at Derby, surely. I'm not so sure. I think if, if... If there was an offer made to him, it would be very tempting, I'd say, for him to turn it down. Obviously, as you say, he has his troubles at Derby and he's turning things around there and we all know what the points deduction, but he's on a really good run of form and they're doing well and that would be a hell of an achievement just to keep them up if he was to do that. But I think because of, obviously his allegiance to Everton, um, his background, where he started, all that kind of stuff. I know Marie through and Duncan Ferguson there. By all accounts, he's great friends with Duncan Ferguson and he's a member of staff already with Everton, so I'm sure he's in the background maybe pulling for that also. Um, 
And if you look at Rooney as well, obviously he was a fabulous player and we all see with brilliant players, Ruby, they don't necessarily go on to be brilliant managers. But even if you look at a little bit of insight into Rooney was writing a column, I'm not sure, one of the Sunday papers there for a year. And he's real insightful, really good. I think he's very good on the game. He was on Monday Night Football one night as well. Um, and probably what a lot of people don't give him credit for is his intelligence off the pitch as well uh, and his game intelligence his understanding of the game and you can see that obviously in his management with Derby so I don't think he do no worse than what they've seen before um, and I think it would be very very hard for him to turn down if an offer was made Fergal Brennan is also with us on the line journalist in Merseyside Fergal any update for us? Uh, the situation as it stands is, is that Roberto Martinez has kind of edged ahead of Rooney in the, in the pecking order, both with the bookies and what journalists who work quite closely with Everton are saying um, is that as it stands, obviously these things can, can change in the next couple of days, but but Martinez is the go-to man at the moment. I think, as, as the guy said there, with, with Rooney, there is this issue over Derby. And I think, in, in fairness to Rooney, I, I agree with what Alan said. If an offer arrived at Rooney's door, he would obviously consider it. He's, he's an Everton legend. He's an icon of the club. Um, came through the ranks, loved by the fans. But he has made a big play at Derby that he's sticking with them, uh, even with the situation of the, the massive points deduction. He's he's essentially committed himself to them, at least until the end of the season, to say, I want to stay here and dig Derby out of this mess. And Roberto Martinez has, has kind of edged in front of him now. Obviously, the situation with him um, and Belgium is that he's under contract until after the World Cup in Qatar uh, next Christmas. So that would have to be negotiated. I don't think the Belgium FA would be overly beholden to keeping him to the contract I think the kind of whispers are that he's obviously underwhelmed with them and the fantastic players that they've got he's only got them to a semi-final in the World Cup uh, once and then two I think it's two quarter-final exits in in the European Championship so all in all I think uh, an interesting aside to this I've been speaking to a lot of people today Everton fans and, and people that work close to the club and their general kind of mood is the same list of managers that are being linked now are the same list of managers that have been linked every single time a manager's been sacked in the last six seasons. It just seems to be a little bit of a merry-go-round and you just pick one, it doesn't work out, they get sacked, they pick the next one and, and, and so on and so forth. And that's the big concern, that's the overarching concern for, from Everton fans here is that this lack of planning, this lack of strategy, direction, which comes from the ownership from the board is what's really undermining this process. Underwhelming managers, yes, Rafa Benitez has been sacked on the back of a dreadful run of form but these structural issues that exist within Everton are the big problem and until they're fixed it almost doesn't matter who they bring in because they're going to be operating within a broken system whichever way they slice it up. So Alan, Benitez the sixth manager to leave the club in the past six years so just lasting seven months. From Wayne Rooney's point of view I think especially when we've seen what's happened um, with Frank Lampard going in and to mm. um, Chelsea that time Gerard took the Aston Villa route and, and we'll see what happens there. Like play, People like Wayne Rooney it's hard to get a shot at it and when you get your shot at the Premier mm. League the big time it has to be right too. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point Marie because... But it's 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 funny because you only know in hindsight whether it was the right move to make. Then, if it does, obviously if it doesn't work out for you, you think that was the wrong move at the time. Whereas when it's offered, you're thinking I have to jump at this. But I think with the Lampard one, that's slightly different to the Gerard one that I liked. He went off obviously up to Scotland and did his thing up there. I often compared it here to maybe like the likes of what Ronan O'Gara was doing with his coach, and he just didn't jump into maybe a Munster job or an Ireland job that I'm sure he could have been offered. He's gone off and done his homework and done his coaching badges that way and that gone down that route, which I 
liked and I think that's why that will stand Gerard in much better stead than maybe what Lampard was when he went into Chelsea I know he had the stint at Derby but I don't think he was prepared to take on a job of that level so early in his coaching in his managerial career whereas with Rooney as well you could say that's something similar but Everton are not as big as Chelsea or a man or maybe a Man United or uh, Man City or Liverpool. So I don't think that expectation will be on him where he has to go in and maybe deliver trophies like what was on Lampard and the money that was being spent. Everton have spent obviously a lot of money and as you said there they've gone through six managers in six seasons, Marie. So it's a bit of a mess the club. And the one thing we always talk about as well, and um, when you listen to managers speaking when we're talking as well, is about the recruitment you have to get your recruitment right for your players if you're a manager but it's even more important to get the recruitment right in terms of appointing a manager for your football club and that's where everything have failed I think they were caught out a little bit off the back of Ancelotti going to Real Madrid because I think they were banking on him maybe staying in the longer term and building something around him but once Real Madrid came calling for him he was never going to stay the appointment of Benitez I said it here to you a few weeks ago Marie it was absolutely madness uh, I met, I don't know why or how they thought that would be a good idea when you think of the connection he had with Liverpool it was always going to end in tears the run of form has been absolutely horrendous losing nine matches in their last 13 as well so I'm not surprised to see him go but I do think with Rooney if it was offered to him it would be very very difficult for him to turn it down Speaking of recruitment recruitment Fergal it looks like or not looks like but there is rumour that Brentford are chasing Christian Eriksen Thomas Frank their manager is obviously Danish it'll be a massive signing for Brentford are they a big enough club to get Christian Eriksen? I think again this this comes into this idea of a, a wages war um, we're looking to sign certain players particularly if we're looking at from a, a contract position we know obviously that the the incidents um, with Denmark at Euro 2020, which was obviously very concerning, that now seems to have been settled. But what Inter Milan have, have essentially kind of, for my reading of the situation, not really played ball um, because they kind of haven't really backed Ericsson when he's come forward to say that he does have medical proof that he can carry on playing. Inter Milan have kind of sided with their, their own internal club options. In terms of Brentford, if, if all the, the medical stuff can be cleared and signed off and ticked off, then yeah, I think it could be an option. I do agree this idea that we're talking about Christian Eriksen who's played in the Champions League final with Tottenham he won the league with, with Inter Milan and, and he is a big star he's the big star in the in the Denmark um, Denmark team but unfortunately based on this position that he finds himself in he kind of has to take a bit of a step down because I don't really think a big team a Champions League level team is going to come in for him that, that is quite sad because he is a Champions League level player I think if provided that he is able to hit these these health targets that uh, that he's being asked to do I think he is still of that level but this would be a big coup for Brentford if they're able to get it through the door because Thomas Frank as you say is kind of building a little uh, a little Scandinavian enclave um, in Brentford and they're doing well so far this season and bringing someone like him in brings a huge amount of experience to a team that's never played in the Premier League before so if they can get it done provided the wages are not astronomical which based on Brentford's financial model I don't think they would be um, I think it would be a big one for them because he adds so much quality on the ball set pieces creativity he's still a very very good player if they can do it without overstretching themselves financially I think it could be a fantastic move for them you could imagine him as well becoming a real fans favourite there as well how much they would they would take him um, into the club Alan they played Liverpool at the weekend and when we're looking at title races and you know two horse races and three horse races Liverpool didn't really set the place alight although they did win comfortably enough the scoreline kind of flattered them I thought a little bit 
Yeah, possibly, Marie. But it, I think what the, the last week has shown us, particularly in the performances against Arsenal on Thursday night and obviously the one yesterday, they're so reliant on Mane and Salah. Um, and when you take those two... And it, to be fair, it's not even a fact that Liverpool are reliant on them. That's an obvious thing to say. Mm-hmm. If you take two best players out of most teams or any team, you're going to miss them. And that's unfortunately the situation. The players that are coming in are nowhere near the level of a Mane and Salah and you'd never expect them to be. So I think if they can just get through this period, Marie, depending on how things go in the African Nations Cup for both those players and get them back because I've always maintained that when Liverpool have their full complement of players they're every bit as good as Man City and would give them a game no problem the problem for Liverpool is their inconsistency and through these little periods with Covid uh, they don't have the squad depth that Man City have and they've obviously suffered over the last four or five weeks and it's the consistency that they need because obviously you're trying to claw back Man City in the form that they're in 13 wins on the trot so York Bank and Liverpool doing something similar winning 13, 14 games on the trot and expect the Man City to lose four can we see that happen? I don't know but for the good of the t- title race Marie um, I'd love to see it just being closed in somewhat because I've said all along for the last four or five months that I thought this would be the best title race we'd ever see they've let me down Chelsea have let me down now Liverpool have let me down and Man City are running away with it Marie Fargo, would you agree with my two esteemed colleagues? I thought Liverpool could have won 6-0. I think it, it was a case of getting the job done, but with a, with a little bit of an edge to it. Jurgen Klopp knows the situation that he finds himself in with, with Mane and Salah away on, on international duty at AFCON. Yeah, I, I would say that it, it was a routine, as routine as a 3-0 win can be. You've still scored three goals, you've still dominated the opposition, they were heading all the, all the big stats in terms of creating chances and possession, and yeah, probably... Could have been a couple more first half. Um, Fernandez, the Brentford keeper, made some really important saves. But I, I would agree with Alan this idea that it, it's just about getting through this next week, ten to fourteen days, and getting those players back. Because depending on how Egypt and Senegal get on at Afcon and getting through to the knockout stages, they could be back much sooner than, than anticipated. Last weekend was the first Premier League game they've played without them because there's been the EFL Cup against um, Arsenal and then the FA Cup against Shrewsbury. And just looking at some of the games to come, there's every chance that if they were back or if they are back, they won't play. Cardiff in the FA Cup, there's a decent chance they'd be rested for that. Carabao Cup away to Arsenal in midweek this week. We know that there's normally a few youngsters that are thrown in for that. So this has been kind of built up that how will they survive and how will Liverpool manage without these players? So far, so good. Um, There'll be Liverpool fans who probably be having one eye on AFCON and, and hoping that Egypt and Senegal get knocked out so they get their star men back. But so far they're doing well. And, and Brentford, yeah, I would agree, comfortable win. Probably could have been a little bit more. And it does give a bit of life back into the title race. If they win that game in hand, they're eight points behind, which is a long way when you're dealing with someone like Manchester City. But it at least gives us all something to, to keep an eye on for the next four or five months. So, Alan, what has gone wrong with Thomas Tuchel? They hit the target once against Man City at the weekend. Yeah, they were poor. I was disappointed with them at the weekend, Ruby, because we have built them up. Uh, they're a very no, no, good no, side. No, 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 no. <laughs> you have, you have built yeah, them up. Yeah, well, with, with good reason. No, they're the Champions League. No wing in this pale face. They're the Champions League winners. With good reason I've built them up, but they have been disappointing. And again, it's that kind of period. Um, and if you look at it, to be fair, Ruby, I think... Yeah, you can focus on Chelsea and say what's gone wrong with Tuchel. But the last six games before the three cup games that they've won, bar the one at the weekend, they had drawn four out of six. Man City are so good in the standards that they're setting that you're not even allowed to get a couple of draws. Now, one of those draws was against Liverpool, who were your nearest rivals. And on paper, you think 2-2, you would take that against Liverpool and we move on. But because City are so relentless, winning 13 on the bounce, you can't even afford a couple of draws. So... 
I wouldn't be too hard on Tuchel. Obviously, they've suffered the, the COVID situation as well, the couple of injuries. But it's just that Man City, I think they deserve so much credit in how good they've been and to win. I, I, I If I was going to be criti- critical of them, I would be critical with the performance on Saturday because they never laid a glove on Man City. But again, I would flip that over to the credit that I would give Man City and how good they have been over a number of months now and to win 13 games on the trot in any league. And it's not the first time that we've seen this with Man City as well. It's relentless and it's absolutely fantastic from them. Fergal, when N'Golo Kante is slightly off, does that really affect Chelsea? You saw De Bruyne getting away from, away from him for the goal. When he's on song, De Bruyne doesn't get away from him. Probably. Uh, he's the best at that job in the world. But then on the, the flip side of the coin, Kevin De Bruyne is the best in the world at what he does. Um, there's no better midfielder in the world for pressing and uh, kind of driving a team on and winning possession than N'Golo Kante. But there's no midfielder better than stepping on with the ball at his feet and bending a, a brilliant finish into the into the goal. Um, I'd say this was a, an all-round off-key Chelsea performance um, based on everything front to back. One shot on target, as you mentioned, which Lukaku's big chance was saved. City were relatively comfortable in this and, uh, and as you say N'Golo Kante sometimes maybe you can put a bit too much on his shoulders because he has set such high standards for, for himself and the performances that he turns in but Kevin De Bruyne is equally as good at his job and then scattered the rest of the way, rest of the way through the Manchester City team they were they were winning all of those battles De Bruyne might have given N'Golo Kante the slip mm-hmm. in that instance but you had Sterling roasting Marcus mm-hmm. Alonso for the whole game and um, Amrit Laporte at the back for City was, I thought he dealt with um, with Lukaku really really well and that was it mm-hmm. all, the majority if not all of those mm-hmm. individual battles were won and uh, and that's why City won and that's why they are out in front at the top of the league because Chelsea had a little bit of a stutter just before Christmas but they've, they've got back on the horse they, they have looked good Man City are just that good that they can just turn up in that type of a game and just puff their chests out and, and stroll on and that's why, unless Liverpool are able to do something in the next few weeks and months, they're going to walk this for me. Well, a little bit of breaking news. The best FIFA men's coach has just been announced and it is Thomas Tuchel. Tell Ruby, tell Ruby that. <laughs> Individual accolades count for nothing. For that, Alan? <laughs> who, got the, who got that Player of the Year award? Your man that just can't even get a game for PSG, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, is that what they call him? Uh, well, the best FIFA women's coach is Emma Hayes anyway, so just want to get She's her. She's a brilliant coach. Yeah. Uh, before we finish up, uh, for me, the most enjoyable game of the weekend, Alan, was the Aston Villa United game. Mm. Um, not sure if you're a United fan, but I just, I found it quite entertaining to see Katina come back as well and to, to slot right in. But it was Jacob Ramsey who's keeps stealing the show, really, for Aston Villa. Yeah, brilliant young player. Um, it looks like they've unearthed a gem there, so... Gerard, I've really liked Gerard since he's come in and I felt on Saturday that was the first game that he was under, not pressure in terms of his job or anything, but just he was on the back fucking into that game because his first six games they obviously won four out of six but then he had lost three in the cup game against Man United last Monday night as well he'll be so disappointed they were the better team the whole night and he'd be so disappointed that they never came out of that with the result so going into the game because he had lost three on the bounce he was on the back foot a little bit expected a response the fact they went 2-0 down as well Marie they showed a lot of character as you say Coutinho coming on again you could point to Man United and their deficiencies in terms of not being able to hold on to a lead the mistakes that's been made that we've seen continuously but I think from Phil's point of view Coutinho gives them a huge lift a brilliant player a brilliant coup by Gerard. you're talking about Ericsson maybe going to a Brentford you look at the impact Coutinho will have with Aston Villa a top quality player um, and I think they'll only get better as the season goes on 
Okay, well, just before we finish up, a little bit of potentially good news to bring you anyway. Anyone that was listening to the show last week would have heard Pique Lopez on talking about his Cape Verde team. Well, they have came from behind to beat Cameroon with Pico uh, winning the Man of the Match award. And Daniel MacDonald from The Independent, who's usually very reliable when it comes to permutation, says that this should see Cape Verde through um, to the round of 16 unless there's a surprising sequence of results in the other group. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Alan and Fergal, thank you so much for joining us. Fergie, or Fergal, uh, Ruby, I will be back talking to you tomorrow. That is all we have time for this evening. Tara Kumar is up next. Game on on 2FM with Green Farm. Being up to 90 isn't real. The protein in our range is get real. Two.